Hello, welcome to the How Might We podcast. So first of all, apologies for the slight delay in releasing this one. It's been a busy month. Uh, I've given talks on distributed organizations, which you'll hear quite a lot of in this podcast episode, actually. Um, also, a, a TEDx talk on alternative education and a talk about tech monopolies and their exploitation of our cognitive biases, which is the subject and the title of my next book, Tech Monopolies. Um, I also got married this month, um, which was amazing. We had a wonderful party in Portugal, many friends and family. It was a DIY celebration, which is very fun. Um, so indeed, it seems like my geeking about self-organization has no limits in its influence on my on my personal life as well. Um, anyway, so that was that was really beautiful and special. Um, so that's that's why I'm a bit late here. Um, lots of work, lots of energy and traveling in the past month. You'll see uh, on my website, johnbarnes.me, that the recordings from my debates at the Hey on Why Philosophy Festival earlier this year, they've been published. So you can enjoy those slightly prickly videos as an antidote to the relentless optimism I think you hear here on the podcast. I've also released my first patron-only audio pact called How Might We Live Better With Less? Uh, it's a 12-part short course on minimalism, so I'm sharing my experience with owning very, very few things uh, and why I think it makes sense philosophically, psychologically, practically, ethically. Um, and it's, a, it's a first step, and I, I've been asked to make many more on various topics uh, that I've touched upon in my work, so that feels really exciting and energizing. And I think the short format is a good counter balance to these long in-depth interviews that you hear here on the podcast. Um, so I guess that brings me to my my main and only housekeeping topic of this week, which is uh, to say that I'm happy that I've now fully launched the Patreon page uh, and my paying patrons can right now uh, pay whatever price they feel comfortable with each month as a donation. And re in return for that, in a return mainly for supporting the podcast, I guess, they also get access to digital formats of my past books, access to upcoming book publications, um, including the audio courses, which are a patron-only access at the moment. Um, they can also access the current um, pack, which is about minimalism, uh, and any writings or, or recordings, past, present, and future, I guess. So again, this is a monthly pay-what-you-want basis. So if you enjoy this podcast or my writings or you've benefited from other parts of my work, such as my talks or debates, I'd really appreciate your support in return for, um, for which you'll gradually get access to more and more stuff. Um, indeed, if I had to ask for a single Christmas present this year, it would be, it would be some sort of donation, whatever you feel comfortable with, with on a monthly basis. Uh, and failing that, I'd love your feedback so that I can know how over time I can earn your support. Uh, so you can do any of these things by signing up to Patreon, uh, my newsletter, um, or just sending me a note. Uh, and to do that, just go to johnbarnes.me. That's J-O-N-B-A-R-N-E-S dot me. So thank you for that. Okay, over to this week's episode. So this week, uh, you'll hear me speak to Richard Bartlett. Uh, Rich is the founder of Lumio, a piece of open source software for collaborative decision making. It's used by thousands of organizations, communities, even governments uh, around the world. It's, it's a really amazing tool I recommend you, you check out. He's also the founder of The Hum, which is a coaching 
training and facilitation consultancy that gives practical guidance for decentralized organizations. Uh, and we talk about both these things plenty today. Uh, our conversation was really impromptu. Um, we, we'd been recommended to speak to each other by a couple of people, um, and I found it really generative. Um, so we have a lot of over overlap, Rich and I, from direct democracy to running small group processes uh, and even down to, to meditation. And you'll hear that's kind of the the thread of our conversation from those really macro topics to the to the smaller ones. Um, so Rich is what I'd call both an engineer and a psychologist, uh, by which I mean that he's able to think in large complex systems and understand the engineering of that down to really facilitating and helping really small groups of people. Um, so listening over the podcast, I again, I really appreciated how integrated I think his thinking is. We discussed the Occupy movement, we discussed so-called leaderless groups, um, even the platform cooperative movement, which you'll, you'll hear me talk about a bit more in the new year. We spoke about direct democracy, facilitation, psychology, um, the theory theories of change. Um, I had one particular realization, or at least a kind of sharpening of a point of view that I think I had, but was somehow dormant. Um, uh, and that is the rich spoke about the role of deliberation in a group as a tool for personal growth, for learning, as a way to grow and learn and understand each other and the world. Um, so in that sense, deep democracy, I'll call it, has many systemic benefits, particularly in terms of potentially fostering better people uh, with more compassionate attitudes. So I, I found that really insightful. I think you'll hear it better articulated in our actual conversation. I think it's in the second half. Um, anyway, this conversation really goes from big to small, from head-heavy stuff to heart-heavy stuff. Um, and I really enjoyed listening through it again when I was clearing up the audio. So I hope you do too. Um, so with no further ado, I hope you really enjoy my conversation with Richard Bartlett, with I, which I've entitled, How Might We Grow Through Deliberation? Enjoy. Okay, Rich, good to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Good to meet you, John. Yeah, we've got some uh, we've got some, some mutual people trying to get us to speak together. So it's it's nice to speak together. Um, I'm aware. So we we've just had this little chat before clicking record on the podcast. So I'm just going to take our listeners through the broad agreement we have as to um, as to how we're going to run this conversation. If that's all right. Yeah. Sure. So I'm going to, yeah, so basically you and I seem to have a load in common. I'll be sending people to your, to your link so that they can, they can go down the, the rabbit hole that is Richard Bartlett um, and all, all your various writings. But essentially what we have in common goes from the very macro, um, like conversations about digital democracy uh, and that, that kind of stuff, the engineering or technology that, that requires that down to the very micro level as to how small groups can operate participatively or whatever. It'll be interesting to see the, the terms that we both use as we go through that. Um, so, so I'm going to try and steer our conversation from that really big to really small level over the course of the next hour or two um, with, with room for plenty of tangents in between. Mm. Is that right? Does that sound like a good framing of what, what we're about to do here? Totally. And I got excited when you said tangents. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to, my, my job here is to, 
let us go on tangents and specifically let you go on them and to also rein them in. I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to do that as, as tactfully and, and well as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. All right, so maybe a, a good way, let's just start, let's just enter the conversation by getting some context around you. I'll hit you with a few questions and then I'll, I'll, just, I'll just let you go and from then on I'll, I'll just do some, some light um, piloting and tickling to get us, to get us on path. Um, so, so the broad questions I have are, maybe you can just give listeners some understanding of your story. Uh, and then the two questions I have is, what are you doing at the moment? And what's the job that you're trying to get done? Like, what's the, what's the purpose or motivation behind this? So I'll just let you go, and then, then I'll, I'll come in in a bit. Cool. Well, um, the question of story, uh, I really believe in having a lot of context about people. Um, like, if it's a, a group that wants to work together, um, I really like to know a lot about all the people and, and when it's a conversation or interview or something, my instinct immediately is to try and tell you everything about me, um, which maybe wouldn't be so interesting. So I'll tr try and slice off some useful parts and maybe we can explore more of it if it comes up. Well, if, um, yeah, if it tells us something about who you are and therefore give us some context for your motivations, I think I agree with you. I think that's really valuable. So um, as your listeners may have picked up already from my accent, I'm from New Zealand, Aotearoa, and that's a, um, I mean, already there, there's a story there, right? Like, my country has two names. It's a, um, there's a, the settler name and then the indigenous Maori name, Aotearoa. And um, growing up in a bicultural society, I think, has definitely left a residue on me that is still very present today. Um, which is, there, there's a tangent waiting to go if you want to go down it. Um, but so, yeah, from New Zealand, um, in mid-30s, um, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian family on a farm. Um, in my early 20s, I switched over to, you know, moved out of the farm into the city, out of the church into atheism, um, and out of school into university engineering. Um, and then graduated with an engineering degree and um, really no sense of, of purpose or connection or, um, yeah, you know, pretty lost and confused. And um, I felt like I had a lot of privilege in some sense, like living in a peaceful country, well-educated, loving family, um, but also felt like the world is... Um, yeah, increasingly unstable, I guess. And, and not really, I was really unclear about how to connect those two things. Like, hey, I've got all these opportunities and resources and privilege and the world seems like it's um, falling to pieces in some regards and I don't know how to bridge that gap. And so that was a really uncomfortable, um, disorienting, depressing couple of years. And then the Occupy movement happens and I get swept into that and it changes my life and gives me this meaning, purpose, connection thing. And then from Occupy, um, my friends and I started uh, Lumio, which is a, a social enterprise, a worker-owned cooperative, um, building a piece of technology for inclusive decision-making, obviously directly inspired by our experience in, in Occupy, which, you know, the exciting part of Occupy for me was the decision-making in, in, in two branches. One is 
the self-organizing thing that you have um, thousands of Occupy events and, and camps all over the world without any central coordination. Um, so there's that, that sort of emergent bottom up comes from, yeah, comes from anywhere kind of leadership that happened. Um, and then the other, the other fork being within our camp and within most camps, um, we governed everything through consensus process in the general assembly. And both of those uh, two halves of the coin were like super inspirational for me. And so that's why we, we started Lumio as a, um, an opportunity, I guess, to keep playing with the problems of self-organizing and collective decision-making. So yeah, Occupy was just over seven years ago that I got involved and, and it really feels like uh, I'm coming to the, almost to the close of a seven year cycle. It's not fully closed, but like my, um, my, my relationship with Lumio now was much less of one, one, you know, feeling super responsible and like I've got to put all my energy in or else it won't survive. And that's much more now like, ah, oh, the thing has a life of its own and, um, I'm a supportive contributor but um it, it lives well with or without me and so i've got more energy for other things so um over the last two years has been this long slow transition from focus on lumio software for yeah more effective participation um more efficient consensus making that sort of thing and uh now transitioning more and more of my energy into uh this little venture with my partner called the hum and that's a, you know, it's a consulting company training, um, hosting events, retreats, and so on. Where instead of instead of looking at software, we're really just looking at people and and what's the human side of collaboration and what's difficult, like the power dynamics and the conflict and different decision making methodologies and so on. Um, so it's been this 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 gear shifting process. And now, yeah, what job am I doing? Um, I think. I think I'm in a discovery mode again, like um, opening out, you know, when you've got a software product, when you're in a startup, it's like you've basically, you've got a solution and you're trying to tell everyone in the world that it's, it's the thing for them. And now I, um, I feel much more free and like I can go and explore problems a bit more and not have a predetermined solution in mind. So it's a, a much more exploration kind of phase. Um, and, and, I'm yeah, I feel open and, and that I'm kind of seeking what my next job is going to be in a, in a sense. Um, and yeah, like you sort of framed up in the introduction, it's somehow, it seems to be something about very small groups and very large groups and, and the interaction between those two. So that, <laughs> that's not, that's not a very sharp answer. I know, but that's, that's where my head is at. No, that's, that's, that's really useful. I think my assumption at least is that, when we talk about democracy, for instance, I just feel like that I'm using that word because uh, my listeners will know that I use that word a lot, but it's, re it's really loaded. And my assumption is most people think of uh, voting for a representative is probably one connotation. And the other is that it's done with loads and loads of people. Like it's done with millions of people. Yeah. Um, and I think the... There's two things that get lost in that. One is that there are four, that doesn't necessarily mean, that's not necessarily what democracy is, like direct democracy or even anarchism can be something that starts with lots and lots of very small groups, that it, it, it emerges from the bottom up. Um, and the, the second thing is that working in small groups isn't going to the polling station, which is a piece of technology, that, that tick for, for left or right that you do every five years 
that it it's a process of getting to know a group of other humans um and there are fascinating ways to get good at that like it's not easy to do that and what fascinates me about your story is that i feel you you get the tech side and the personal side that that requires and it seems to come from occupy so i wasn't a i wasn't a part of that and so i know you've told this story before but it sounds so shaping to you can you just tell us a little bit more about i guess like what it was actually like in your personal experience to be there because my impression is that making decisions in those small groups has has really shaped the the course of your life since really yeah um it, it, it's really dramatically shaped the course of my life um and it's it's really hard to be able to stand outside of my own life story and tell you, you know, what, what happened and why, because I'm, I'm in the middle of it. But um, it, one of the most obvious things for me was first a sense of recognition that um, I had felt like it was just me and a couple of my weird friends that were um, existentially concerned you know like that we were looking at society and saying like this is just not going to work like this is um we're heading off a cliff here on many different fronts um in in yeah early 2011 i really felt like a weirdo like i was a very i had it was a very marginal opinion to be worried about the potential collapse of society um and then on october 15th 2011 someone called the um the Wellington um, instance of Occupy into existence. And, and I met with a few hundred other citizens and all of them shared the same concern with me. Like, yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I, I actually sense like an existential threat. This is not just things are a bit unjust or a bit uneven, but actually uh, we seem to be accelerating towards um, what could be, yeah, like a fundamental breakdown in, in how society works. And that just that first thing, just to get recognition that, hey, I'm not weird, I'm not marginal, there are a lot of us, even just in my own town, let alone all around the world, that have this sense of um, urgency and um, just the, the enormity of the challenge. Um, that was massive on its own, you know, with, with nothing else involved, that was already a massive step to, to feel recognition. And then, and then, yeah, to spend this time with a, with a, you know, intimate group of people. Um, just that, that the physicality, you know, like Occupy means to, to hold space. And it's like the, the way that it worked for us, and I don't know, I didn't visit other camps, but it's, I think it was quite similar in a lot of camps that there was basically a core group of people that held that piece of land and um, hosted each other in community and looked after each other at the same time as trying to develop a sort of political consciousness and a, and a manifesto and host these public events and so on. And that we all had this intent to hold that community and manage that community in a distinctive way. That was really um, an opportunity to put our values in practice and go, okay, well in our tiny little miniature, um, many little society that we're prototyping here, how are we going to do things differently? Like, are we going to have a police force for instance? Like, are we, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with behavior that, um, seems antisocial are we are we gonna can we come up with something better than than what the state has come up with right so does that did that does that feel like some sort of almost like a simulation then in, totally in right totally like um 
to me, it was much more a demonstration than a protest. You know, like this is this is us prototyping how you would run a yeah, how would you run a community on directly democratic principles and um, what's needed for direct democracy to work and what are the what are the breakdowns and the trade offs and the limitations of that and um, and personally, yeah, I'm much more motivated to. I guess maybe it's my engineering side. Like I'm much more motivated to make protests, uh, sorry, to make prototypes than to make protests. Mm. Yeah. So, so you're, you're much more motivated to um, like test out solutions, uh, hopefully demonstrate that they work. If not learn and demonstrate something new, than you are to go around with a placard with a problem on it. Yeah. Or a demand, you know, like um, I really don't, uh, and I never did, but even less and less over time, I, I don't believe in simplistic solutions. Like I don't think, um, like you can put problems into simple terms. You can say like, it's a problem that there's, you know, a minivan full of white men that own half the world's wealth. Um, like that's a simple problem, but I just don't know a simple solution for that. Like it, it, um, it doesn't, uh, it, it seems like we need to have complex solutions to these things. And they, yeah, that, as I understand it, it's a process of discovering, like test, doing lots of, you know, millions of small tests and discovering what works and amplifying the winners. And um, I just don't have a straightforward answer to how we're supposed to do things in a different way. Yeah, there's that, there's that Chomsky quote where he says something like uh, that he gets criticized for being too vague about solutions. And then he says, but I just don't know anything else, but like just try loads of stuff and then do the thing that was best. And yeah. then, like, keep doing that. Yeah, that's it's, me. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like Occupy was also like a simulation of that. So, can you? Because I want, I want to take us to where this led you. Can you take us a bit more through, like, the if if you were to like write the report that follows your experience at Occupy? You know, it says like these are the key learnings, um, these are the key successes, uh, and considerations. What what would that report sort of sort of look like? I think the main thing that comes to mind for me is about subjectivity. Um, like that was the big transition in my own life from, from being trained in this engineering tradition, which is all about objectivity. You know, you, you're standing outside of problems and you're measuring them and you're coming up with blueprints and so on. Um, and then to go into, um, yeah, a consensus process where you're trying to understand what everyone thinks and you're trying to come up with proposals that are satisfactory to everyone, it really is an exercise in subjectivity, not an objectivity. Like the facts have got not very much to do with the decision that you make. It's got much more to do with like, um, yeah, the, the lived experience of the participants. And if you're going to, if there's some contentious issue, like what is our, yeah, what's our political position um, that we want to announce to the world, for instance, and you've got 300 people who, you know, a week ago didn't know each other and you're trying to compile like, what can we agree on? Um, that's a process of inquiring into the subjectivity of others and, and really getting to know them. Like, who is this person? Where have they come from? What do they think? And why do they think that? And what do they feel? Especially like, what do they feel? Like, what are their fears and anxieties and desires and dreams? And it's just a completely different way of operating from the engineering frame of like, well, we just need to assemble the facts and put the, be put the best facts forward and um, have a communication strategy or something like that. So is, it, that is it right that the thing that was new for you then from your Occupy experience is that you, you went from like 
just seeing a decision as like uh, an analysis of of facts and then a decision comes out to seeing that people are driven by their their feelings and pasts and and point of view on the world yeah that's a that's a really good summary and and so in in Occupy, did that happen according to like a specific model? Is it like there's there's ten groups of ten that eventually, you know, bring their decisions together into a decision shared by the hundred, or is it messier than that? Like, how does this thing work? It's yeah, it's a lot messier than that. I mean, like, this is probably an important um, piece to get to get comfortable with. I think the um, the governance structure that we used in Occupy was composed of memes. So um, there wasn't a top-down, you know, there wasn't a central committee of Occupy that designed what the structure should be and then, and then sent those blueprints out to all the camps and then the camps implemented those blueprints. Um, what there was were some hashtags, some videos on YouTube, um, some memes, some ideas about how we were supposed to be. So like on the first day, on October 15th, 2011, um, a group of us, like 300 citizens who didn't know each other were milling around in, in the civic square in Wellington. And we didn't know what we were supposed to do. Um, and all awkward, we knew, awkward guys walking around each other. <laughs> pretty much. There was, there was this, like, this uncertainty thing. Um, this, we don't know what the next step is. Um, but one thing that I think everyone knew from the memes of Occupy so far, because, you know, like in Wellington, we, we started basically a month after Wall Street. Um, what we knew from Wall Street was like the most important word as far as I was concerned was this thing of being leaderless, that, that nobody's in charge. And, um, and uh, you can interrogate that. It's a, it's a kind of a problematic concept, but it's a, um, the point is that it's viral. This idea that, ah, what is Occupy? It's leaderless. That means no one's in charge. That means we're not having some kind of top-down structure where someone's calling the shots and the rest are getting in line. Um, and that was pretty much all we knew about what we were supposed to do when we arrived that day. And that, that to me is why it had this sort of um, awkward starting moment for 15 minutes or something was because no one wanted to lead, right? Like we knew that it was supposed to not have a leader. So how do you start things? And what happened in our space was someone, someone said, kind of raised their voice and said, Hey, look, um, I really don't want to, I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to be the leader, but um, how about I just tell you in a few minutes um, why I came down today and, and when I'm finished, then it would be great to hear someone else say, why did you come down? And very rapidly, like, this is the kind of self-organization happening where everyone took turns to share a little piece about themselves and why they decided that, you know, why this Occupy call had motivated them. And, and then the next step was um, pretty soon, um, we got into a state of, well, we want to make decisions uh, such as, yeah, do we want to stay the night and form a temporary village and how do we want to run the village and what about food and shelter and press releases and all this, you know, all these decisions suddenly started to need to happen. And we had the meme... Our propensity of to create to-do lists is quite <laughs> remarkable, right? Because that, yeah. that has come literally from all of your, your collective imagination. <laughs> it's not... <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I had seen one video... Um, and it's a really lovely video. It's like seven minutes or something on YouTube about consensus at Occupy. And um, uh, that, was, that was the entirety of my exposure to consensus decision-making. It was like, here are some hand symbols that you can use. It's good to have a facilitator, you know, um, take turns speaking. Everyone should listen while one person is speaking. 
um, like just the like how much information can you get into a seven minute video like a really tiny little piece and then everyone else that, that arrived in the group you know some of them had more experience participating in um, uh, yeah facilitated groups and had some experience with consensus decision making and collectively we're like oh, okay well how's this going and we sort of bootstrapped a, a decision making protocol for ourselves and something very similar happened in in all the other camps too and so that's what i mean like the the governance structure was viral like it's these composed of these memes rather than um uh a predetermined blueprint and so the um those, those memes do they end up with something with the model or or by the end it still feels like like some form of like what's the outcome to this i guess is there a is there a blueprint that does emerge after all the prototyping or um, we're still in a state of, of utter flux at this point i th i think different camps um, had different experiences on that. So, so one thing is like in, uh, in New York, I know they got as far as the spokes council model, which is basically where you have a, it's like a, um, a federation, you know, where you have lots of different groups making consensus, uh, independently and then representatives from each of those groups come together and they make consensus again. Um, so they, they, uh, had the, yeah, whatever the, the, capacity or the ideas or the people or whatever to be able to get that far to, to um, come up with a model like that. In our case, we just had working groups. And so we, we were like, okay, there's kind of this whole area of work around communication and there's this other work around um, hospitality and looking after people and, you know, like sort of divided up all the to-do lists into categories and then put subgroups in charge of managing those and reporting, you know, under the, under the guidance of the general assembly, which anyone could participate, participate in. But, delegating the details out to the working groups. Um, one thing that was really uh, striking afterwards, like during the intensity of the movement, I, I was um, too caught up to notice, but afterwards on reflection, I saw that a lot of, like while it was this emergent, um, uh, yeah, sort of unstructured, decentralized manner of learning, uh, on reflection, reading through reports and blog posts and so on from lots of different parts of the world, there was a really, um, there was a real coherence to the experience that people went through. Uh, and, and I don't know if anyone's actually formally done the research to, for instance, like it would be great to see. And if you, if you just looked at some of the more active camps and, and looked at their timeline, I would predict that you could see the emergence of particular governance structures, you know, like uh, two weeks of being in a general assembly every day and people start to realize they want to delegate decisions out, for instance, or, mm. um, after three weeks, you realize that you really have to deal with the, all of these recurring um, complaints about physical safety and harassment and abuse, and you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to come up with some kind of structure that, to, to keep people more safe. And, and from what I could see just from my informal research, it seemed like there, there were these kind of issues and responses that emerged um, more or less in the same, in the same sequence um, <laughs> all over the world. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to think that you, I mean, wh whether you arrived at those same responses independently or not is a difficult thing to like tear apart. Um, but I can definitely see that that groups would naturally have to go through those stages. One thing I'm thinking of is that word leaderless, because um, that's the word I've been obsessed with in the past, mm. um, theoretically. And then when I think of my experience working practically facilitating groups, um, there's one model by Susan Whelan, the integrative model of group development, 
that I, I like keep coming back to where she says that in the first stage, in that awkward stage where people have a lot of small talk and aren't too sure what to do, groups need direction. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like that your that person knew that that per that person who said I'm going to tell my story and then open up the floor was able to do that. But that direction could have come mega autocratically. It could have come yeah. from someone who had some sort of ulterior motive or, or wasn't quite in tune with, with the vibe. But I guess the culture had been set online. It's just interesting to think, like, how could that have happened in all the, like, in the multiverse, you know? <laughs> like, what are the yeah. other ways that could have happened? Yeah. And I think that's, that sort of highlights why I frame it as a prototype. It's like, nowadays, I wouldn't... Like, I don't talk about leaderless. It's not, it, like, it doesn't seem to be a helpful terminology, but it was good enough for the first prototype. And similarly, like, I don't really talk about non-hierarchical anymore either because it's like, I don't think, I don't think that really illustrates the point that we're trying to get to. Um, these days, I'm much more focused on, like, well, let's just be really specific about what are we trying to exclude. When we say leaderless or when we say non-hierarchical, I think mostly what we're trying to do is exclude coercion. Like, that, mm. that we don't want someone to have the right to force someone else to do something that I want to. Mm. And that's a much more specific definition that um, doesn't tell you about what shape the group is or what shape the governance structure is, but does give you a very clear line that, okay, we're on the, we're on the lookout for coercion and we're trying to minimize it. Yeah. Like defining yourself by the beliefs and behaviors that you won't hold is something we seem to never do. And yet it like, I feel clearer when I'm told what I can't do rather than yeah. what I can't do. Do you, do you see yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like if I think of the manifesto of companies, it says, oh, we're this and we're that, but it never says we don't do this, we don't do that. Yeah. Should be yeah. more useful maybe. Well, probably both are good. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. We, yeah, we, 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 will, we will include others, we will not force them to do something against their will, would be perhaps a useful way of doing that. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm like starting to get the picture of, of how this happens at Occupy and I really see how your, your like epiphany or, or love for small groups starts to emerge. And so this leads you to Lumio, right? Can you tell listeners a little bit about the founding of Lumio? And I'm really, I'm really interested uh, for listeners to get a, a bit of an understanding as to the job the product does, but also how it's been used, like cities, countries, companies. It sounds like Contrary to a lot of the other stuff I've seen, Lumio has been applied in really different contexts. And I think that that's mm. kind of the point here. So maybe take us on, on that journey a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, very early on during the Occupy story, um, one of the threads of conversation was um, about how our democratic structures are failing and or, or inadequate for the 21st century, I guess. And, and so there was this kind of um, globally, you know, there was a lot of conversation about we should have uh, digital democracy. Like we should be able to utilize the benefits of communication technology to have a much better way of interacting with government. Um, so th th this idea was just sort of like happening in lots of different places at once around Occupy. And in our local camp, there was a crew of us that were talking about it. And um, we, uh, a, f a few of us met with this network called Inspiral. And um, Inspiral is a complicated thing to understand because it's, um, 
a few hundred people and they're all doing different things and that we all have different ideas about what it is that we're doing. But uh, it's a network of purpose-driven companies and most of them are really focused on this idea of like self-management. Like we want to work on something meaningful and with a positive impact and we want to do it without some kind of top-down command and control structure. Um, and so the little crew of us from Occupy met with this social enterprise network in Spiral and it was like out of the overlap that, that Lumio emerged. So um, the conversation sort of coalesced on, yeah, we should make some software. Um, we should do it as a social enterprise, as a, as a purpose-driven company rather than like a, um, a volunteer project or something like that. And, um, and we should focus on our immediate problems, like on the problem of, yeah, we have a few hundred people in our Occupy camp and we're trying to coordinate them and, um, and it's hard. Or like in Inspiral, there's a couple hundred people in this network and they're trying to govern themselves democratically and it feels like we're missing some tools to do that. Um, so we, that was sort of the, the, the founding intention, I guess, was like, let's just solve the problems immediately in front of us. And maybe it will, it, it, let's, let's set ourselves up in a direction that maybe it will have some relevance to the big questions about democracy, but we don't know exactly how or when. What we do know right now is there's these small questions of, of small-scale democracy that, um, yeah, like if, if, you, if you have a group of people, say you have a, a co-op and you've got 100 people in this co-op, and you want to make some of your decisions uh, without having a meeting, there's just not good tools for that. I think Lumio is a good tool for that. I hope it is. Like, <laughs> that's what we've designed it for. That's what people are using it for. Um, but we're really surprised to discover. Like I went on a big search looking for like, what's a good decision-making support software for our group at Occupy or our group at Inspiral and just couldn't find anything. So that's what motivated us to, to build it. So yeah, what it does, it's, it's a discussion forum. It's like, mostly it's very familiar as a discussion forum. Um, but there's some features that have been designed by and for facilitators to take that discussion and turn it into a decision. You know, it's a deliberative decision where you can, you can poll people's opinions on things and then you can raise proposals and people can vote and change their mind and so on. And, and you're, um, it's, it's open and flexible in the sense that if you're a, formal consensus group you can use it but you don't have to be a consensus group either like you can sort of um choose your own decision making protocol but if you if you're the kind of group that makes decisions based on deliberation and tries to include people then probably the tool works for you and so that was a, a quite an intentional decision at the start as well was that we wanted to um keep the keep it broadly applicable like um not just let's make a tool for activists or let's make a tool for um, people that are committed to consensus decision-making, but let's make a tool that's just good for groups who are trying to do things in a vaguely inclusive way. And so um, having that, that breadth of applicability has meant, yeah, like very soon after we launched, we had um, people from city governments using it to engage citizens and policy development and, um, yeah, a lot of co-ops, like I've mentioned, but also um, democratic schools and actually regular schools that, you know, they want to, um, they've got the parent teacher association or something like that, or the board of trustees and like just a quite a broad array of groups, usually, um, usually less than say about 300 people because I mean, it's, uh, it doesn't have, um, 
there's no like, yeah, machine learning or artificial intelligence or something that, that has some kind of clever way of summarizing um, the opinions of thousands of people. It's just a, it's just a discussion forum. So it starts to, it starts to get pretty overwhelming once you have more so than this, a couple of people. This isn't like a um, polis type tool. It's no, it's a combination of conversation and an explicit decision that's more or less binary. Is that right? How do you mean binary? Like uh, vote green or red on on this proposal. Uh, there's a bunch of different decision making methods in there now. So it's like you can um, you can consider different options and say you know which of these options do you prefer. Um, and then there's yeah the proposal I think you're thinking of is um, in the in the tradition of consensus is where you put one proposal and you say do you agree with this do you think it could be improved or do you object. Right, and then that person say, I, I think it could be improved. I can now go and propose back my improvement. Yeah, yeah. And so this get, you, said, you said some of the people who started using this. Can you, can you give listeners a sense of, yeah, like may, maybe like your, your most, um, your, your top few whatever exam, examples where you think Lumio has had a, a big impact? Like, is it with citizens, with companies? I think it's Wellington Council, right? Is one of your your sort of top case studies on this? Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think, like, how to actually answer that question accurately, um, because it's so hard to like to pin down exactly where what is the role of the software in supporting a group to be more effective and inclusive. Right. Um, so there's like there's there's case studies where I'm like, yeah, that was nice. You know, like it was nice that the say, for instance, the Wellington city council, they got a bunch of experts and then they got a bunch of citizens and they put them together and they had a big discussion about um, what should our policy be for governing alcohol in public areas. Right. And that process was really cool. But then if you actually look at the outcome, um, a lot of people were really dissatisfied with the final policy because it, it, um, it seemed, you know, the, the accusation is, and I, I'm, I'm trying to stay un, um, unbiased <laughs> on this, but the accusation that I've heard is that um, people, citizens felt that the city council already knew what they wanted in the policy and they basically ignored what happened in the deliberation. So, mm. so they, they, they asked the question and still did what they wanted. There's the accusation, and, and I don't know how grounded it is, but um, th- just as an example to show that like, you can have the best technology ever and the best process and there's all this other stuff happening that will um, determine whether or not it's a good outcome. And, and I, yeah, so like, it's hard to, it's hard to be able to draw a box and say like, ah, yes, here, here the software has, has been transformed. Um, and uh, because I'm so familiar with like uh, good effective groups require so much human intervention mm. that I don't know how much responsibility we can take for them working really well, you know? Right. Yeah. And maybe, I, I, maybe another on. example that sort of illustrates again, like the, uh, a bit of the highs and lows. Like, um, I, I don't know if you've raised this theme of um, platform co-ops, but the, the general theme is these big digital platforms are rewriting our economy and our society. Wouldn't it be nice if they were owned, uh, and run democratically and that the profits were kept local to the communities that generated them. And there's one, um, one platform co-op under that general uh, theme called social.coop. And they are a um, social media platform. It runs a service called Mastodon, which is like a very um, 
close clone of Twitter, but it's it's owned and run democratically. And they they've been using Lumio heavily to um, to govern like how is our social media community like what are the rules? What are the guidelines? What's the business model? Um, how do we deal with trolls? What are we doing about censorship? Like all this, all these sorts of questions have been done uh, democratically, and and most of that governance has been done through Lumio, and. In one sense, I'm I'm like celebrating that as a like perfect use case to explain what this thing is good for because you have a um, a global community of a few hundred people that have an opinion about how this platform should be governed and there's there's no way they could be in a meeting and so having this this decision support software has been really helpful for them. On the other hand, being on the inside, I've seen like some huge conflict and and um, chaos and and you know dramatic splits and so on go on within that group and and i don't know how to account like is that because um the software is not up to scratch or that um you know there's all these other social dynamics going on that that get in the way of the smooth functioning of that group it's it's really hard to know where to draw the mm. line yeah your my my brain just went on like three different tangents that we <laughs> could discuss there one is one is like democracy i feel is uh, just so narrowly understood, let's say, in that it seemed to be something that happens in the public sphere. Um, mm. But but it matters. It matters for that kind of democracy that Facebook isn't democratic, as an example. Like yeah. if those systems, like Facebook, Twitter, Amazon. Uh, etc you know like the 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 smallest group ever to have held so much power perhaps aren't managed democratically that matters or it matters that you elect representatives in a so-called democracy but between nine to five you don't live in one um in in most organizations at least like it's a very narrow understanding of democracy to to simply see that the voting is where democracy happens and work isn't where it happens and there's a huge overlap between those two things like they they do in, interact with each other you know yeah and and i really believe that like the um the democracy in the large scale thing like what it means to be a democratic country has it's a lot more to it than just voting like it's also about the attitude of the citizen like this idea that we're all taking a bit of responsibility for what our society looks like and it's also about um uh, I think it's about tolerance, you know, like about realizing that you and your particular tribe are only ever going to have some part of the truth. And we agree to share power between us in the hopes that that kind of averages out to something that's good enough for everyone. Um, that kind of attitude, like you don't cultivate that attitude by voting, you cultivate that attitude by deliberation. Mm. And um, most people don't get to practice deliberation. And that, that to me is, is if, you know, if, if you want to pin down my theory of change, it's like, I think if, pe- if more people had more experience of deliberation, we'd have healthier societies. Yeah, I mean, there's, so one of the experiments I've done this year is my family and I moved to Costa Rica and our son went to a democratic school. He's seven. And, uh, and on Monday morning, they have kids council, you know, where you've got this group of seven-year-olds with a guide at the front and they're, talking about the things they want to change about the school and then they're having to propose those things and then take responsibility for making those things happen. And they're also voting each other into positions. And I like, I saw that and it made sense, but it wasn't until I saw that, that I realized like the irony here that to be 
brought up in the perfect simulation of an autocracy until the day you're allowed to vote is is like the wrong blueprint for democracy at large essentially i realized i wasn't trained in understanding others or in making decisions with another person and and were we to all be trained in understanding one another and making decisions together the world culturally would look very very different like the engineering of democracy you know the format of the decision making process or whatever um kind of feels secondary to the fact that we'd have a culture of understanding one another at least that's my perspective on it that i i was trained in the wrong in the wrong thing you know i don't know if that's tying with what you're saying there no it totally is and um there's, there's even more to it than that i think that it's not um it's not just that you were not trained in democracy and so um maybe you're not a great participant in in citizenship it's also that if you've never been exposed to yeah deliberative practice um you're going to have really simplistic ideas about how the government should be doing things differently mm. um what because you'll lack the nuance from getting other perspectives yeah exactly like you, you if 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 you've always been in an autocratic environment and you say we should be doing things more inclusively um, but you've never had a chance to practice what it actually means to be in an inclusive group over a sustained period of time. You're going to have these really simplistic ideas about how we should always include everyone all the time. Mm. And you're going to have simplistic ideas about how power works and, and miss out on the nuance that you learn from experience of like, okay, so this is what we did with Occupy. Everyone's included. No one's in charge. Well, you see what happens, you know, like mm. it kind of works, but there's also some really profound limitations to that. And um, by living through it, you start to learn like, yeah, the nuance, the, the, like, what, like, like I said, it's like, it's not so much about, um, like I started without my nuance, I was saying, we're going to be leaderless. And then with my nuance, I was saying, let's try and minimize the amount of coercion, you know, which is a completely different yeah, framing. Yeah. And I think a more specific and more accurate framing of what I was trying to get at in the first place. Yeah. That second one is such a balanced view or a considered view compared to the, the first one, which is like no leaders. That's, that's a very simplistic way of doing it, I guess. But you only arrive yeah. through practice. I, th I feel like there's an analogy with, I think we might get onto this with meditation, where like the practice matters, it's called a practice for a reason. Like I know you're not supposed to, to judge yourself as a meditator, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that anyway. Like I'm really bad at it. And, and after a few hundred hours of doing it, like I'm a little less bad at it. And I feel like that same thing matters for group work, that the more I work in a group, particularly with some support from structures or facilitation, the better I am at being in a group like that. It's a, it's a thing I need to practice. Like I need to practice everything else. Have there been um, breakthroughs though? Like, because practice, usually it's like, you expect, yeah, you're going to have to practice for 10,000 10, hours to, to master this thing. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'm hopeful that there's also these kind of massive leaps forward sometimes. I'm just mm. wondering in your experience, either of meditation or of group process, have you had this like major step forward happen? Mm. Yeah, I think I've had both. Like I can, I, I see that there's, I've had both moments. I've had like a, um, a, a gradual progress where I feel like I'm just churning away with meditation particularly, right? I'm, I'm every hour I do, I'm, I'm surely a little bit better than, than I was the previous hour by 1%. And then, yeah, there's these one, you know, there's these moments that you can't undo. Um, 
I've yeah. had a few, I've had a few meditative experience, particularly when that happened, all those moments of group flow, uh, which I'm assuming this is what Occupy did for you is it's, there's a moment in a group where you see like some sort of wizardry emerge that you mm -hmm. just didn't know that could happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Is, is, does that make sense? I, I, so yeah, totally. my answer to your question is I've, I've had both experiences. Um, I tried to trigger the latter in the groups that I work with, but, but it's up to them as to whether that happens. Um, like it's a, it's a participant led thing. I feel. Um, yeah, I totally recognize that. I, I think, um, what I'm getting at is that the, it seems like over the last two years, I've gotten more and more focused on this, um, this hypothesis that maybe it's possible to provoke these breakthroughs in groups. Um, mm. And, and that's been the focus of like training workshops and a lot of writing and like I've got most of a book done on the topic and, and it's like basically seeing, going to all these groups that are already committed to inclusion and collaboration and, or, you know, maybe they're consensus groups or maybe something like it. Um, and, and grappling with like, what do they, yeah, what do they find difficult? Where are they stumbling? What, what gets in the way of their, um, of their thriving? And then uh, trying to trying to recognize, yeah, what are the patterns in those experiences, and then and then what can be done about those difficult, challenging parts. And it, it's still a hypothesis at this stage, but I think we are collecting a body of knowledge of like, ah, these are the trip, these are the trip, the the, the 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 spots that trip people up all the time, you know. So, um, like the yeah, like this 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 nuance that I mentioned about the difference between being leaderless and being less coercive. Um, and there's a, a handful of those things that, um, are common to many of us, I think. So, so, um, to put maybe a little more detail on that idea, the, um, one of the patterns that I'm thinking about is about how we think about power. And in a lot of these groups that I encounter, there's a, um, reasonably simplistic, straightforward notion that, um, the problem in the world is power is unevenly distributed. So within our group, we're going to distribute power evenly. Everyone's going to have the same amount of power. And, and that's kind of like um, a commitment that we make in our foundation stages. And then we don't really talk about it after that because it's kind of awkward talking about power. Um, but then we go on together and we do our project or our co-op or whatever our thing is that we're doing. And we start to realize and notice that actually some people have much more power, some much more influence than others. You know, like some people, when they suggest an idea, everyone gets excited and someone else, when they suggest an idea, uh, nobody notices, you know, and what's going on there. And you have to start unpicking and noticing the, um, what's going on like why is the, why, if we all said we wanted to be treating each other as equals and and the lived experience is not that way like uh what's happening and that is such a ripe source of conflict you know when we say that we're going to be equal but then you can obviously see that we're not and in 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 my experience just with lumio the co-op we went through this transition and over time i think we got a more nuanced understanding of how power works and that actually there's so many different kinds of power and some of them are toxic, like, yeah, this, this um, oppressive, dominating, coercive thing. That's like a really toxic dynamic that we don't want to participate in. But then there's other kinds of um, power dynamics that, that can be really positive. Like if you've got a reputation for being a really supportive, you know, 
really great contributor who helps everyone and always does what they say they're going to do. And you've got good value. Like if you've got a good reputation, you're going to have more influence and that is okay. Like that doesn't have to be a negative thing. Um, but that, yeah, that's the kind of, ex well, excuse me. There's a builder that has just started. Operating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's all right. Uh, I, I guess like, I'm just thinking here, you, so you're talking about these patterns that we see in groups. Um, what I love is that you're talking about, like everyone knows that the thing you just said happens, but we rarely call it out as happening. And yet it, it matters that it's implicit or explicit. So is your role at the moment, um, like th this mission you're on, is it to help groups to understand those nuances? Yeah, we help groups to, we help people to open conversations in their groups that they would otherwise be um, too nervous or shy or uncomfortable to open, you know? So um, I mentioned the power dynamics one, like that's a really common thing that, that can cause a lot of conflict and, and unhappiness in a group. Um, another one is, is about emotional labor and care and like who is caring for who in the group and how that, um, that distribution of labor is, is, is being held in the group. And, Again, it's like one of these examples where it can cause so much heartache and pain in a group if the, if the distribution of emotional labor is not fair. But no one really wants to start that conversation because it can so often turn into like an explosion or a big conflict. And so to be a, a neutral third party, we can kind of open that conversation and, and move people into it very gently and in a really supportive way so they can make headway on these issues without it being a, a, like a massive drama. Mm. And you're doing this mainly through through facilitation training or? Um, mostly like in the last two years, we've been doing a lot of training workshops. So like we'll basically host a public workshop that's open to anyone who's interested. And in. we, we talk about decentralized organizing. That's sort of like the frame that we use. Um, so we get people from, you know, co-ops and startups and companies that are trying to do things in a decentralized way and activists and all sorts. And it's a little bit of us downloading some knowledge and a lot of um, like, yeah, people participating and learn from each other's experiences and, and that sort of thing. And now we're, we're moving um, a few stages deeper. So instead of like a, a, a half a day or a one day with, with a, you know, like a group of people who mostly don't know each other, we're now more interested in, in doing the more intimate work that you can do, say, with two or three days together with one team, you know, and, and really start to unpick some of the dynamics and support them to come out different from how they went in. So that's the sort of emerging focus for us. Mm, so you're, you're really, I, I guess what I'm finding interesting about your story, uh, I'll articulate like my summary of what the pattern that I see, and then I'd love your take on it, which is that, mm. um, my sense is that there's kind of two types of thinkers and I'm interested in both at the moment. Maybe one's a thinker and one's a feeler. <laughs> the, the thinker is like trying to, I don't know, use the blockchain to create liquid democracy, right? Which I see as a technologically driven, probably intellectually driven um, creation of a new system that could allow emergence or a more direct form of democracy to prosper. Um, and that's done at the level, I mean, I'm like stereotyping for ease, yeah. done at the level of code. Um, and then I also know facilitators who are like, I may as well call shamans because of the amount of wizardry that, that they seem to produce in groups sometimes. And that's happening 
in a group of five to ten people uh it's really heartfelt uh and and that's like maybe the most palpable form of democracy and my sense is that quite often the never the two shall meet hmm. um, and yet i think what i'm hearing from your story is that with occupy and the tech platform you've created lumio you've come from your engineering background and you've arrived at the latter you've arrived at the at the group wizardry moment and it's the integration of both that you're you're playing with at the moment is that a fair articulation or yeah that's really fair and it's funny as well like uh, you can see that dynamic of um yeah is it like facilitator and engineer or thinker and feeler um or how whatever you look it's like you can see that in in book in my analysis you can see it in my partnership with nati like that i'm um more the engineer she's more the facilitator you can see it in the um yeah the lumio project like the composition of the lumio team is like kind of half engineers half facilitators and even wider in in the inspiral network that is definitely a strong current through inspiral is this combination of engineering mentality and facilitation mentality and those two things um complement each other in a really harmonious way and uh, do you see this as a or rather I'll, I'll not load my question this is a pattern that i see more broadly uh trying to fix democracy from the laptop or trying to fix democracy for that matter from sitting in a circle with five people uh and i'm just like curious as to like the path forward essentially because the answer can't be either or in my view um but i've not found a narrative that seems to to like mesh the two in a way that someone gleams both from it do you see what i mean yeah um my current position on it is like um the way that change happens in the world um it just happens like it it's <laughs> say if you look at economics or if you look at governance like it doesn't actually i think um like we could have we could ha host a really amazing meeting with a lot of people and come to an agreement about how we want to do our economy different and it's not really going to make much difference on how the economy works um <laughs> like i think i think we live in a world that's composed of like so many different actors and um they're all running on different agendas and they interact in these very complex unpredictable ways and you have this kind of emergent state of what the world's in and um and I've given up on trying to make sense of the whole thing, you know, like it's, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think it helps me to try and make sense of the whole world. Um, but it has helped me to have a little taste of this, you know, like the, the kind of um, complexity and chaos theory and stuff that you might be familiar with that. Um, there's one quote I stumbled across the other day that I really loved and, and I don't know who said it and I'm going to mangle it. So that's a shame. But the quote that stuck with me was um, in, when a complex system is far from equilibrium then uh the islands of coherence can have a disproportionate impact or something like that you know like that that um when when you're in a in a complex system that's like chaotic as it as our world economy and politics seems to be at the moment um these islands of coherence these small little pockets that make sense in a different way could be really impactful on on solving the world the next phase it's going to be in and so i am quite focused on these little pockets like 
And by little, I mean, it's, you mentioned groups of five to 10. I'm, I'm really interested in those, but also interested in it. And the, the, just the next scale up, the more like one, two, 300 people. And, um, and Spiral is one of those that really feels like it's thriving and operating on a different paradigm with different logic and really supporting people to thrive and to work on meaningful stuff. And I am optimistic that we can help um, our sort of cousins who are trying to do similar things. And if we had, you know, sometimes around Inspire, we talk about this idea, like imagine if there were 200 collectives around the world, each composed of 200 people, and they were all really focused on, yeah, supporting each other to do the most meaningful, the most impactful work, um, operating on this, this logic of non-domination, of non-rivalrous, abundance-oriented, you know, um, with, with a good political analysis, a good understanding of complexity, um, good access to resources and so on. Like that 200 groups of 200 people, to me, like that could really achieve a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of people. Just so I understand, when you talk about a group of 200, do you, are you like intervening at the level of the 200 or are you helping, you know, 20 subgroups to, to achieve that level of, let's say, consensus at the level of 200? Well, they interact, right? So, so um, I think the different scales interact. So I'm really interested in having all of the scales in mind. So like for one to what one way to think about it is like, um, let's think like um, if we have everyone in the world, that's, that's the top scale and then go down from there um, below the globe, you might have or a, a bio region or something like that. Um, below that you might have, you know, let's say, let's call it a network and it's somewhere between a thousand, 10,000, 50,000 people, something like that. Below that, you have, um, yeah, these groups that I'm talking about, sort of one, two, three hundred people. We'll call that a tribe. And then below that, you have um, a team, maybe, you know, five or ten people. And then below that, you have uh, a, a partnership, two people, and then you have yourself. And that's, I'm just writing these notes out for myself. That's seven layers. Mm. And often in a, in a, um, if I've got like, yeah, a, a challenge to think through like a group dynamic that's not working so well, often I'll find insights by going up or down that scale. So, so I am trying to support these um, tribes of like 200 people or community maybe is a better word. I'm not sure. Um, and, and I'm also trying to support these teams of five or 10 people. And my experience within Inspiral is that we kind of, they interact with each other. It's like once we had a few really strong teams in Inspiral, it's like the whole tribe was doing much better and is now much more able to support new tribes. And the only way that we got those, um, those strong teams and that strong tribe was by having really strong individuals with strong relationships. It's like this interaction of all these different scales happening at once. And, and, and my intention is try to hold those different scales in mind and pay attention to them all, all, all the time. Yeah, that's a, I, I love that articulation of things. And I feel that that is perhaps the, the difficulty uh, we face is like in, in, in thinking in 8 billion as much as in ones and twos is, uh, is like some, somehow a tricky, tricky thing to understand. And I, I think that's also why I see people enter it at the level of the blockchain or enter it at the level of, of like 
partner therapy. You know, they're, they're, they're the same, somehow the same conversation um, yeah, exactly. that, that must integrate with each other at some point. Um, I want to ask you a question because um, we've, I think we've like fast forwarded down. So I just want to summarize, I think, the journey that we went on and then re recap where we are, which is that we started um, with your experience at Occupy and then the creation of Lumio, which, which in theory can lead on to a conversation about distributed or digital democracy platforms. So we're at the top of that scale. Uh, mm. And then, then briefly, you took us down to Lumio. You just mentioned in passing, really, that it's a, a co-op, so it's worker-owned, um, which really matters here, that the, the structure of a group is worker-owned. Um, and then we get down to self-governance. So because it's worker-owned, the workers also make the decisions democratically. And then we come down to the group level. Um, uh, and, and I think we, we, might, we might carry on uh, converging even further down from our 8 billion to, to a singular person here. But at the group level, you've, you've used the word consensus quite hmm. a lot, which is a word that I, because we said before this call that we'd, we'd share our disagreements. I'm curious to understand the value you place on the word consensus, because I often uh, find myself disparaging that term. Um, so, so I want to I want to hear your perspective on why it seems that you think consensus is a, a really valuable decision making tool, and then maybe we can bounce back and forth on that a little bit. Yeah, um, I think consensus is a terrible word, uh, <laughs> and I was I was using it because it refers to like people can recognize like sort of they can think about the kind of groups that I'm thinking about when I say it, um, I, and I say consensus is a terrible word because. Um, if you if you look in the dictionary or you just assume the the like the kind of natural language use of the word consensus, it means unanimity. Like that's usually what people mean. Like we've come to a consensus, everyone agrees. Right. Um, but if you actually work with any consensus facilitator or you read any you know guidebook on how to how to do consensus, like they'll be so quick to point out that this is not about unanimity. It's not about getting everyone to agree. So you always have this confusion there. So okay. it's, it's a terrible word. And, and probably that's why now in the last, especially the last couple of years, there's been a lot more attention placed on what they call consent decision-making, which, um, yeah, an experienced consensus facilitator might say it's basically the same thing, but to me, it's a, it's a, a helpful distinction and, um, and less confusing. So the idea with consent is that you're going for, you're going to negotiate and deliberate until you get to the point where no one has a strong objection. And that's not the same as everyone has the same preference. There's actually mm. a huge space between um, those two points. And uh, that's one example of uh, a breakthrough that you introduce into a group. Like if you're in a group that has been aiming for unanimity and then you say, how about instead of getting everyone to agree, we just aim to get rid of the strong objections, you'll see that they accelerate in a really you know, significant way. That's a, that's a breakthrough that um, I've seen happen. You know? Um, but even then, like, I'm not, I'm not really, um, a huge advocate for consent decision-making particularly either. Like over time, I, I've, I, I feel less and less opinionated about what decision-making protocol people use, what structures they use, and much more interested in the subject of experience of the person in that group. Like, do they feel safe? Are they thriving? Are they working on something meaningful? Like that's what matters to me. And 
it's possible to achieve safety and productivity and thriving in a top-down hierarchical manner or in a majority rules voting mm. manner or in a consensus manner. You know, like these things happen not just the formal structure that, that makes the difference. So I'm, yeah, much more fluid these days in uh, my analysis, I guess, of, of different formal structures. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you just, I was, I was hoping this would happen in this conversation. I think you just like uh, made me see something differently, which is that I, so I, I, um, I'm on the same page with you when it comes to this consensus consent. And I find it interesting that many people haven't term, uh, haven't learned or heard of the term consent decision-making, which is we, we ensure there's no paramount disagreement versus we all agree. And when we all agree, we tend to have watered it down to the degree where in a way we all disagree. It's kind of weird. Um, but the, I think I place too much importance on the decision-making like method or technology or the fact that it's non-hierarchical when actually I think like I'm trying to clarify if I'm understanding you correctly, what really matters whether it's in a hierarchy or not is that the people who are in that group are like safe, cared for, uh, able to think freely and express themselves. And that that can, in theory, happen in a hierarchy. I would just I would just assume, uh, or, or with some experience, that it's more likely to happen not in a hierarchy. But is that is that the, what you're saying there? That your 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 journey has taken you from caring yeah. about the decision making tool to caring about people caring? Yeah, totally. And and yeah, I I also share your assumption or your bias. Um, you know, you're biased against hierarchical forms. Um, but I think the reason I'm a bit cagey about it is I've seen so many groups that um, identify with cooperative values or, yeah, they describe themselves as consensus decision-making or non-hierarchical or bottom-up or whatever the language they use. I've seen so many of these groups that are fundamentally very coercive. They're not mm. safe environments. They're super inefficient. You know, like, it's really common to meet these groups that are stuck in a really toxic dynamic. Um, despite having the best language ever and the best formal structures ever. Right. Um, Yeah, I I, I sort of like want to blow the cover off them a little bit and say like, do people feel good? (laughs) Are you effective? And and is it a good human? Like that's what matters to me. Yeah, I guess like ultimately the decision-making tool is probably going to cause some damage limitation to how toxic that group could be but it won't replace whether those humans care for each other or not. And that's the thing perhaps that we've not had enough practice in. Like, you know, I I go back to my thing about school that I I simply wasn't trained in, in creating a caring environment. Um, And it feels like a really groundbreaking thing to learn how to make decisions in a way where everybody in the group is, is really, feeling safe in this moment uh and and yeah being being educated in that feel feels like something the world needs and the nice thing as well about focusing on care and safety is that it is um it's kind of a new framing and so it's not subject to the same polarized thinking you know like this there's this 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 common polarization which is like ah you need to have a hierarchy it's a necessary evil to be productive 
And then on the other side, you have no, all hierarchies are evil. Uh, we must do things by consensus, even if it gets a bit slow sometimes. And you get stuck in this, this polarity, which doesn't really uh, shed much light. Um, but instead, if you focus on safety and care, uh, it just opens up a new line of inquiry. So um, I don't know if you've heard, a lot of people in the sort of organizational development space know about this Project Aristotle, major, major, major study by Google to try and understand what is it that really high-performing teams have in common. And the thing that they concluded was the biggest factor is about psychological safety. Do people feel safe to be themselves? Do they feel safe to suggest ideas? Do they feel safe to disagree with each other? Like if, you, if everyone feels like comfortable and like they can just be present and say the things that are on their mind, then you tend to have a high performing team. And that's coming from Google who, you know, like majorly hierarchical, majorly profit driven, not your, um, not your typical like left wing consensus oriented bottom up kind of hippie. No. <laughs> like it, it sort of cuts through in a, in a different way. And just focusing on, on this. I mean, I would say, and for people of my disposition, the way to produce psychological safety is to do co-ownership and to make sure that no one has coercive power over anyone else. And it would tend towards a more decentralized um, governance structure. Um, but that's just, it sort of leaves open the possibility that other structures are right for other people. Mm. Yeah, this is great because this uh, we're I think discussing probably the bullseye of both of our biases. Although it it seems that you've interrogated yours perhaps more than me. Um, <laughs> in that I, I maybe maybe for simplicity, I just go towards self self governance, um, co ownership, uh, are are a sort of fertile field for psychological safety to happen, um, and that's perhaps true but it's not the only truth. There's, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of examples. And in fact, I'd probably know some leaders who it's a total hierarchy, but the leader is so gifted in creating a, a loving environment that teams can be productive and purposeful and, and achieve that psychological safety as well. Like it, the, the self-governance isn't a precondition for people to feel happy, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the risk that I'm um, highlighting is that you can have self-governance um, and, and feel some, some pride or some like, oh, we must be doing things right because, look, we don't have a CEO. Um, and that can kind of mask um, the toxic behavior that's happening. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because uh, and, uh, one thing you can see is that because there's a need for consensus, People start uh, secretly politicking, you know, they start, they start trying to get the other person to agree with them over dinner so that eventually they, they reach consensus. Like it's, per, it's perfectly, you, you can think of a scenario whereby the consensus is leading to, to worse behaviors than would happen in a hierarchy necessarily. And it's fun to look at like what are some of the, yeah, like the shadow behaviors or something that are encouraged by these different systems. Um, or yeah, what are the unintended consequences or something like that and, and make a comparison there. And, um, I don't know, maybe in a, in a hierarchy, the, the unintended consequences are I'm more likely to, yeah, develop my skills of, of, um, domination and manipulation and in a, in a consensus environment, maybe I'm more likely to develop my skills of listening and empathy and compassion 
I'm not sure. I hope that's the case. Mm. Um, I'm biased in that direction, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. Um, you're making me think of the role of, um, this is from House of Cards, that I know this, <laughs> the role of a whip uh, in whipping everyone's opinions in favor of that person's opinion, which is a form of like consensus decision making, which is can be utterly toxic as as dramatized on Netflix. <laughs> and really, really, really key as well, you know, like, so um, I, I don't identify as a whip, but I definitely do something like that role. I read somewhere in a Wikipedia entry, um, a Japanese word that I would I pronounce nemawashi. I don't know if that's how you say it or what it means. But what I learned from Wikipedia was that nemawashi is the process of building consensus one person at a time. Mm. And I totally do that job um, in my co-op and also in the Inspiral Network. And what I'm doing there is like making sure primarily that the individual is heard, like that they're genuinely heard, not that they feel heard, but that they are heard, you know, like that their point has got across. And then I can move on to the next person and really hear them. And it's a lot easier to hear someone one-on-one than it is in a group. Mm. And you get everyone heard and then you try and discover like what's the common ground or, or what is the one point of contention that we really need to do another round on. Um, but I've de- yeah, I've definitely played that whip role a lot. And, and I've done it a lot in service of the group. And occasionally I've done it, um, you know, kind of trying to manipulate the group to fall in my direction. Mm. And, and fortunately, the group's had enough kind of checks and balances in place that it has spotted when I've been manipulating it. Right. My and said, hey, <laughs> like, <laughs> you've stepped out of line here. Yeah, I've heard the. Have you heard the word fascipulation before? Which is when you use fascipulation <laughs> yeah. to manipulate. I love that word. Totally. It's, <laughs> a, it's another kind of disclosure, right? It's the explicitness to say, like, this is a thing that we can do. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like one of those checks and balances, which might be worth a, qu- uh, a quick bit of attention, is transparency, because it feels to me that there's a difference between you uh, doing this, let's call whipping, kind of method ethically or not because you could go around and have everyone feel heard but communicate something differently and and over time you get it to i think a scenario you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation where ultimately you've done things your way and no no but potentially a lot of people don't know you've done that or you can do it transparently and each conversation you have with each person is recorded so that all others see it and then your cards are on the table. Like if you did manipulate the situation, every, it's there to be seen. And that, that feels, I don't know if that's something that you do or don't do, but it, it feels like potentially one of the checks and balances could be that transparency. Um, this is another example of nuance. Like I started out thinking that all transparency all the time was the right answer. Mm. And then of course, like in that example that you just give, if I, if the participants knew that I was documenting every conversation, it would change the nature of the conversation. Course, if it's yeah. a private unrecorded conversation, you can get at um, some kind of unformed, unpleasant, you know, kind of uncomfortable conversations that people are going to be willing to explore in a private conversation that they're not, if they know it's going to be recorded. Mm. But where I settled on that one is basically um, you have these private one-on-one conversations where you can explore without being on the record and then the final decision, when you actually check where does everyone stand, that happens transparently. Like yes. You do the, the final yeah. decision, it happens where everyone can see everyone else. 
Um, but maybe the process of uncovering where the agreement and the disagreement lies, that's happening privately. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think, because I think I haven't quite managed to make my thinking make sense here, but maybe you can help me. I feel that transparency and privacy aren't on the same spectrum. Like uh, privacy feels like a right. So if, if you're playing this role of the whip and you and I have a conversation and I share something intimate, um, I have a right to privacy and for that to be off the record. Um, however, at the same time, the final decision we come to, I think uh, uh, there could be almost the argument that there's a duty for the group to know the outcome of the conversation, but they might not know the, the conversation that led to the outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think I'm in the same point as you of like haven't quite straightened out my thinking, but more or less agree. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't know how to not put them on the same spectrum in my head, but I I, I feel like you can do both essentially. We well, can have a very always takes work. Let's see. Yeah, other part. Um, you can kind of install privacy by default, but meaningful transparency always takes effort and and uh, is always context dependent. So it's it's yeah. Again, it's on a slightly different spectrum. It's a harder thing. Mm. So I think uh, I'm, I'm going to segue here because I think transparency gets me there neatly. Um, all of this stuff that we're talking about uh, certainly hasn't been a linear conversation, but perhaps that's, um, that's the only way it could be because of what we're talking about and these different scales that you mentioned. Um, leads us to the individual from the group to, down to the psychological safety or perhaps some sort of level of personal insight that an individual has. Um, transparency, the reason I'm using that as a segue is because I've seen this trigger people. So I've worked in places where I've sort of uh, perhaps autocratically <laughs> implemented democracy or something. Uh, and typically with transparency is the first thing to, to shortcut our, our progress in that direction. And what I've seen is that it can be deeply unsettling for people, even at the most basic level. So let's imagine, you know, a, a simply an organization working via email towards speaking in open forums, like a, an open channel on Slack. I've had people come to me and share how, how scared they feel because they're a perfectionist and they don't want everyone to see the mistakes that they make, et cetera, et cetera. So it feels to me like the, the level of personal work that we all do really matters here uh, and this is where i don't know it feels it feels tender in organizations that we're discussing productivity but what we arrive at is essentially a form of like therapy or personal development for each individual um, i know you've written about this a little bit in the past so maybe maybe you can give us a little bit of an understanding as to that that relationship you see between our our personal growth and and social change or the growth of an organization or, or whatever that collective part may be? Yeah, I've written about it a little because I don't really understand it. And writing is like how I try and make sense of things. So I still feel very much an amateur in the space and, um, uh, and quite, yeah, almost quite unfamiliar with like, how do you talk about personal development and therapy and, and what are the, what role does it play and all that? I'm very much in a discovery. Um, I think one, one of the lines, cause it's a very dense, you know, knot of different ideas all twisted together. But one of the lines to follow is that 
for those of us that are that are organizing um uh kind of against something or or trying to either like we're like you know some of the, some of the people i'm working with are like anti-capitalist for instance or um if you even if you have this positive framing we're like ah, oh, we're producing we're going to create this new paradigm or um this this much more positive framing um the assumption is that there's some kind of um bad old way of doing things and we're trying to get to a new good way of doing things and um yeah say it's capitalism or democracy or patriarchy or whatever the thing is that you're like this old this old paradigm that you're trying to transcend and, and, and start constructing the second one um for me it's been really important to remember that i am embedded in these systems you know like that it's not i'm not outside of capitalism i'm not outside of patriarchy i'm inside them and they're inside of me and so if i think it's important that we have a future that is free of this patriarchal dynamic um i have to i have to look into myself as well as looking out into the society and going how would we change institutions and and laws and this sort of stuff i also have to look into myself and go like how am i participating like how am i um uh, contributing to and supporting and complicit in the 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 negative aspect of that patriarchal dynamic and how am i traumatized and harmed by it as well and um and know that i'm going to bring that stuff with me when i go to my um collective that's trying to organize a, a post-patriarchal future you know like that stuff is going to come with us into the room i'm i'm like all of us are arriving contaminated and that there has to be some kind of allowance made for us to decontaminate ourselves otherwise we're just going to you know code all those biases into the next thing that we build mm. and um my i've done yeah some some personal work which is um mostly like meditation a little bit of psychotherapy um but more and and i guess my writing in a sense in a sense is is personal like it's usually a process of me trying to make sense so that's like a personal thing but mostly that work happens in relationship like almost the, the vast majority of it um seems to be in relationship it's like having these spaces of intimacy whether that's with a best friend or a lover or um yeah these kind of teams that really they and you um start to get to know each other and can can um be vulnerable with each other, I guess, and, and open up to some of the, the more tender parts. It seems like that's where the growth happens, you know, like in these spaces of intimacy, in these um, shared, shared vulnerabilities. Um, so I'm, I think that one of the things that draws me so much to the small group is, is that you can produce intimacy. And, and then once you've got the intimacy, then you can start to make headway on decontaminating yourself from yeah, the patriarchal and the dominating and the top down and the greedy and, you know, these, these kind of shadow parts of ourselves that we live with. Mm, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen some of your writing before. I think you, you mentioned how even at work, which a lot of people separate from in life, uh, which is kind of funny, but the, 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 by working in a small intimate group, whether it's for profit or not, uh, it should and at least can be an be a space where we all become better people um but that's typically considered something you do outside of work but it is possible to build organizations 
that are are places that make us better people as individuals, right? Yeah, and even I would go so far as to look at our democratic institutions. Like I believe in a mode of doing democracy that makes us better people in the process of participating. And it's not what I see <laughs> in most institutions, but I believe we can do it. Yeah. And I think it's a useful goal. Yeah, I think I I, was, I like felt <laughs> felt some some goosebumps there. That feels like a really integrative and beautiful vision of what what democracy in its like truest and deepest sense can be. I think I, I'm I'm really with you with you on that. And that's where we come, we loop back around to my theory of change about we'd be better off if we had more deliberation. Because for mm. me, like, that is a process of, like, it does encourage a lot of personal development, whether or not you take up the invitation. Like, it does encourage you to develop as a person. It encourages you, you to listen better and to take more consideration of other perspectives and to, yeah, appreciate that other people have different kinds of wisdom that you could learn from. And for me, that has been very, that has felt like a lot of personal development through that process. Mm, so the collective gets to make better decisions and each individual node, let's say, to use engineering language, gets to become stronger, thus helping the collective make better decisions. And, and, and so the cycle continues. I think it's like one, a positive singularity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I like that. Uh, one, one thing that you just made me think is uh, I'm, I'm like trying to, because I really see what you're saying about how you become better from the process. And one way I've been seeing it in relation is through, through my ironies. So what I'm trying to do is I often have thoughts as, a, as like John the thinker, let's say, that I really believe in. And then I'm mainly through fatherhood actually, just so confronted with me as an irony that I believe in cooperation. And so, uh, and yet, yeah, I will like, tell my little boy what to do sometimes like because because as an adult i know stuff that you know I, I won't let him run onto a busy road as an example and that's a moment where i'm happy to be an autocrat and hold him back from doing that but there are many moments where i uh i simply am an autocrat and uh, and noticing having like just sufficient awareness to notice that i'm a living irony in that moment feels like this is an example where us as a group of two leads to me becoming better at this and like helping him to notice is it as well and call me out and say you're not the boss of me here <laughs> I, I don't know I've not quite come to the end of this thought but it feels I, I totally feel what you're saying about how being in relation to someone else is a great form of personal development and it's free and it, like the, your example of fatherhood, like just perfectly demonstrates what I mean by the kind of nuance that your values uh, attain once you have some experience, you know, like mm. it's really easy to say no coercion, no autocratic decision making. And then, yeah, you have a kid and you need to coerce them off the road, you know, yeah. like that. Right. And, and that's like every, every, I think every sane person would agree that like that's an appropriate reaction to do. So then you've got this question of like, how do you resolve? Like sometimes it seems appropriate to coerce someone, but usually it seems like it's not. And what is that transition space or what is that? Um, yeah. What, how, do you, how do you know when you should be in one state or the other? And probably you'd find like a whole bunch of really useful ethics in that question. And, mm. and again, thinking of this, this contamination I mentioned, like 
we, you know, we're pretty familiar with some of the dynamics, dynamics I mentioned, like capitalism and patriarchy, but there's one that doesn't even get on the news, which is adult supremacy. You know, like we live in a society where it's expected and totally normal that children are coerced all the time by all of the adults around them. And that's just like totally normalized and we don't even have a name for it hardly to, to talk about it. Oh so like, probably you've got some of that contamination in you, you know, and it's like, yeah. well, how do you... How do you unpick that stuff and, and find a, yeah, like a healthy balance where you know when to pull your autocrat card and, and mm. how to subvert that and how to equip your son to subvert that? I mean, what, one, one way I notice it is uh, I think I do a reasonable job on this one, but it's certainly socially acceptable and encouraged to lie to children constantly uh, in the form of, I'm doing this because of insert lie here or, um, you know, you, you know, like it is, it is literally, it's, it's seen as legitimate quite often to lie to children, but obviously like there's an age where they get what's going on here. And, and I am now an adult who I'm like trying to like, uh, debug or defrag my, like, <laughs> you know, my, my like propensity to tell little fibs that I think are legitimate, but in fact aren't really. And this is the work of self-development that I guess, I guess comes with, with all this stuff. Uh, so I'm uh, aware of time. I feel like we've arrived at a, a decent space here. Maybe, a good, maybe this is a good time to start wrapping it up. Um, how should I do this? I think the be best way perhaps is if you, I'll, I'll leave you like a, a bit of a closing, closing segment here to either summarize uh, our conversation or or like key insights um and we, we can like like we said at the beginning we can do this we can do a part two because this it feels like we're getting into ripe ripe territory as well here i think yeah i i find it very hard to summarize um <laughs> well maybe don't maybe ramble and that's okay directions but um i think what's floating on top uh is it's about this thing of of um how your values ripen with experience. And, um, and that, that implies a kind of humility, like assuming you're gonna keep having experiences and you're gonna keep um, adding nuance to your understanding of the world. Um, that implies presenting your understanding with a bit of humility to start with, you know, like knowing that you hope to develop over the next few years and, and um, and it is like I, I have been aware like as I'm trying to explain things on this conversation I am aware like you said about Chomsky like maybe I maybe I sound vague maybe there's people that listen to this and they're like what the hell is that guy even talking about because I am trying to acknowledge the complexity and do justice to um, yeah sub subjectivity and at the same time I'm trying not to get lost in this awful you know like the worst kind of postmodern everything is relative I haven't got anything to tell anything like I'm trying not to do that as well. Um, and, and for whatever reason, yeah, it seems like the emphasis on, on doing stuff, on the experience, it seems to be what I'm, I'm called to focus on. I, I think maybe that just is a reflection of um, the spaces and conferences and groups that I've been with recently. I think there's um, maybe I'm used to having more talk Sorry, more action and less talk. That's that's what, what my native environment looks like at home. And a lot of the spaces I've been in have been more talk, more ideas, more theories, and not so much experience and practice. And that 
uh, yeah, I'm like, I think with this reflecting on this conversation, it seems like I'm trying to push people back towards like, just do stuff, <laughs> do stuff and learn about it and tell us what you learned. <laughs> mm, and that's the, that's also the, I think there's a lesson in that that feels like the, the emergent nature of every, all the work that you're doing. Um, it, it always starts with reality and bubbles up into some sort of theory that we then disagree with because there's an, we have a new, a new experience that leads to that um, sort of re-understanding of the world. Yeah. For my part, I want to share that I, there's a couple of things that you've made me question that I'm going to continue to do. One is the, uh, I mean, I know I have a bias about participative groups. Um, and I, I think I'm like happy for now to, to still hold that bias. But so long as the, so long as I remember that the important thing is on how the humans in the group feel. Um, and that, that I think is, is really key. So, so whilst, whilst I believe that participative methods lead to this better, I shouldn't lose sight of the, the point that I should uphold most in a, in a group decision-making or collective process is the, the happiness of the humans in that group. I think I, I really want to reprioritize that understanding after this conversation. Mm. Um, and the second thing that you, yeah, that you said, there was just one point where I, you really helped me by seeing that democracy, or let's use that word, democracy can be personal development. And in fact, like maybe that's, that's the highest dream we could, we could be looking towards. And that, that fills me with like so much, uh, so much purpose to frame it in that way suddenly. So thanks for that. Cool. Yeah. I mean, should we, maybe we just end there and then any, um, we, we try and do a part two or, or something at some point. Yeah. I'm very, I feel very ready to end with an ellipsis. Let's do that. Um, any, um, last, qu last couple of questions then, and then we'll, we'll leave from there. Um, one question I like to ask uh, is any tips or advice for listeners based on what we said? It could be from the smallest, smallest thing to uh, read this book, but any, anything you'd like to leave people with on that? Um, I think on the, on the group stuff, if you're in a group and uh, it's, you're trying to do participation, self-organizing, uh, consensus, consent, whatever, that sort of thing, um, and you're struggling reach out to someone outside of your group. That could be me. I'm happy to talk to people. I'm really excited about this stuff, so I'm happy to share. But basically, just getting someone from outside of your group to come help your group makes a huge, huge difference, whether that's a conversation or like a more, more of a you know, training or some, hosting something like that. But yeah, getting a supportive external peer makes a huge difference. And I'm mm -hmm. happy to be that peer for people. Great. And where can people find you, Rich? Um, Geographically, I'm going to be in New Zealand um, from like most of November through till about March, and then I'll be back around Western Europe and Scandinavia for um, after then. And uh, digitally, richdecibels.com is my personal website, and then the hum.org is um, where we do our training and retreats and that sort of stuff. And both of those places will take you to my writing on the web and you can start following those links outwards. Wonderful. I'll, uh, I'll make sure to put that in the description so people can go down the rich decibels rabbit hole in their own time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, man. It's, it's felt like a really, uh, from, my, from my part, a really, a really generative 
uh, and just fun conversation to have. I'm happy. I'm happy. It's felt like a ramble at points, but I'm really happy for that. So, so thanks. A happy ramble. Happy ramble. All right. Thanks, man. Cheers. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the How Might We podcast. And if you'd like to support on an ongoing basis, you can do that simply by subscribing to the newsletter or by supporting on a financial level, which means that on a monthly basis, you can pay whatever you want um, in order to donate and support the podcast. In return for that, you also get access to my books, um, digital versions of them, as well as audio packs. These are series of lessons in multiple topics like minimalism, Uh, in order to help subscribers and these are delivered through a personal podcast link again thanks so much for listening please give me your feedback um, support the podcast financially or subscribe to the newsletter you can do all those things by going to johnbarnes.me that's j-o-n-b-a-r-n-e-s dot me thanks (laughs) 